All right. You read with Greg the scripture from Matthew chapter 17. And I want to talk to you for a few moments this morning on the fact of Jesus atop Lookout Mountain. Jesus atop Lookout Mountain. You'll find here that Jesus and his three disciples went up unto a high mountain apart. I'm sure you have seen those signs or perhaps you have visited Lookout Mountain in the Chattanooga area. And they advertise Lookout Mountain by saying, See seven states from atop Lookout Mountain. Well, our Lord Jesus was not in the Chattanooga Lookout Mountain, but upon this great mountain uh, where he and his disciples were, our Lord uh, gave the disciples a vision uh, of uh, the future. The Lord was keenly aware of the past, and he could well observe that from this mountaintop place. But yet he looked out into the future revealing to the disciples by a most miraculous event and occurrence what they could expect and what they had coming. Uh, good times uh, were coming uh, in the future. The Lord Jesus, back in chapter 16, uh, had just begun to announce to the disciples uh, concerning uh, his death. You'll notice in verse 21 of chapter 16, that from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must go up unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Now to these disciples, I'm sure that seemed to be a dark cloud hanging over them. There was a moment of inward despair. Our Lord always knows the right time and the very place where he can encourage our hearts. And thus he did so as he took his disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, up to this high mountain apart. You know, in the life of every Christian, uh, there ought to be several mountaintop experiences. We ought to be able to look at not only seeing what's happened in the past, but looking through the Word of God and the eyes of our Lord and seeing what He has prepared for us and what He has designed for us. That in itself ought to bring us out of the doldrums, out of despair, out of the very pit that we may have sunken into but here in Matthew 17, uh, I want us to look at some practical things as well as observing uh, the things that occurred uh, in this particular event. Matthew chapter 17 records for us what is commonly known uh, as the transfiguration uh, of our Lord. It is a very high mark, especially uh, in the life of uh, the followers of uh, our Savior. Notice, if you will, in verse 28 of chapter 16, which verse literally, I believe, should have been added in chapter 17. 
For here the Lord had said, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Indeed, the three disciples were in that midst. And now our Lord would take them up and give them a bird's eye view, a miraculous revelation of the coming of his very kingdom. Now you say, uh, that just doesn't, uh, that somehow doesn't fit with what I have believed about the coming of the kingdom of our Lord. But you'll notice that Peter, even in later years, when he penned under divine inspiration his words in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1, and reading at verse 15, you'll hear Peter revealing truth concerning how this very moment of the transfiguration of our Lord was the moment of the radiant glory of the coming of our Lord Jesus in that particular sense. Now in Second in, in Peter 1, verse 15, Peter says this, Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. Now listen carefully. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. In other words, Peter says that the event described and recorded for us here is a foretaste, a foreview of the literal coming of our Lord and what will take place in the life of those who have believed on Him in that very moment. Now let's look carefully at what is revealed here and looking at the various groups that are involved in this miraculous event and discover something of what each of these groups can teach us in our own lives. Notice, if you will, the disciples in verse number 1. Verse number 1, Peter, James, and John, his brother. That is, these men made up what is commonly known as the inner circle. These enjoyed a peculiar intimacy with our Lord that the others did not seemingly enjoy. That was not because our Lord loved the others less than he did Peter, James, and John. But rather, these men seemed to be the kind of men who wanted ever to draw closer to Christ, to learn of him, and to indeed walk in the joy and the pleasure of his own fellowship. On numerous occasions, for example, 
when there was a ruler of the synagogue and whose uh, child was ill and, and uh, needed the healing touch of Christ. The Bible says that he would not permit any to go with him to that, uh, to that scene other than Peter, James, and John. Remember also in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was there in prayer or went there to pray. He took his disciples and asked them to go with him, but then he said to the three, you come with me and tarry here with me while I pray. But the sad story ends by telling us that even those three intimate disciples fell fast asleep while Jesus was in prayer and in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. But what I'm pointing out to you is simply this. These men had an intimate fellowship and thereby our Lord desired to reveal more of himself and his truth to them. John said, for example, in 1 John chapter 1, of which he is the penman, and he wrote in John chapter 1 and verse number 3 and 4, and he said, and the, the things which we have heard and seen declare we unto you. I believe one thing our Lord knew about John, and that was this. If he had heard and seen anything, he is sure going to tell it, especially as it related to the things of Christ. But often how mum we are when it comes to relating to others the blessings of Christ in our life. How mum and how silent we are often uh, even in praising God for the good things that he has given to us and the good things that he has provided uh, for us in our lives. But there is something of that intimate fellowship between the Lord Jesus, Peter, James, and John. He takes them up to a high mountain, and the last word in verse 1 is, apart. In other words, there is the need for that special place in every one of our lives. And I'd ask you this morning, do you have that special place? Is there a special place where you meet with the Lord on even a daily basis? Is there a place that you have designed as the place apart that is shut out from everything else? It is just your place and the Lord's. I remember several years ago, uh, before I uh, had my study moved out to my barn, uh, when uh, I, before Bob and Sheila uh, owned the property that, uh, where I, that I used to own, and I had way down in the corner, uh, there were two dogwood trees. And I went down and, and uh, made me a, a shelf, a board, just like a, you know, between those two trees. And that was my prayer place. Oftentimes I went there for uh, uh, the purpose of prayer and other purposes as well. But yet again, it was a place that was sacred and blessed to me, a place where I could meet with the Lord. Dear friend of mine up in the mountains of Virginia lives way on the top of a mountain called Hazel Mountain. Well, the Clyde Carter has been a faithful servant of the Lord in that area for years. 
And every morning, so his son tells me, and so Clyde has told me often, not in boast, but he said every morning at 5 o'clock, weather permitting, I go out to my place where I meet the Lord. And he said, you know, it becomes precious to me, though sometimes when I get up to go out to my place apart, that the Lord meets me even before I get out there. Well, the truth is, the Lord took these disciples to a, uh, to a special place. Every place ought to be special when the Lord with you indeed. I'll tell you, I'll not forget, and I'm sure most of you cannot forget the place you were when you met Christ as your personal Savior. The place is vivid to me in my memory. I could relate it to you. I could tell you the arrangement of the furniture. I could tell you where I was seated, what a special place it was. And thus Peter did not forget this event up there on that great mountain apart from everyone, just Peter and James and John and the Lord Jesus. My, what an inviting scene that is to my heart, and I, I know it must be to yours if you love it. Not only do I want you to look at the disciples, but let's look at the Lord Jesus just a minute. Verse number 2 says uh, that uh, he was transfigured before them. The word transfigured comes from a word from which our English word uh, metamorphosis comes from. Uh, you may, if you were in school and had some of that uh, elementary science, uh, you were taught about this thing called metamorphosis. First is the caterpillar. And then that caterpillar weaves around him, that cocoon. And after a while, a, a period of time, out of that cocoon, there comes forth a beautiful butterfly. And that's what our Lord happens here in the case of our Lord Jesus. God who came down in the form of human flesh, robed in the, in the flesh of mankind. And now upon this mountain, the very inner person that he was, the God that he was, began to radiate on the outside to a very, almost to a, to a blinding of those who were there. Oh, what a beauty it is to see that our Lord God is robed in flesh. The Word became flesh, John said, and he's the same John. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Our Lord, the disciples had not seen that inner glory of our Lord Jesus. It was veiled by that, uh, that robe of flesh. But now he was transfigured before them. And the verse says, And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Can you envision this in your mind? Now, now don't think that the, 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 the uh, uh, verse is saying that there was a spotlight from the outside that shined on his face. 
and that as a result of that outward light, his raiment was white as uh, the light, dazzling light, but not from the outside, but from the inside. The Shekinah glory of God is often referred to uh, the glory, the radiant, radiance, the holiness, the purity uh, of, of God, the God robed in human flesh. And now miraculously, our Lord is seen in all of his glory as he will be seen when he comes again to redeem us unto himself. The glory of God. Notice then uh, this, the very raiment. He was transfigured. That's a type of, as I've said, of his coming glory. But notice, if you will, that uh, verse 3 says, Behold, there appeared unto him Moses and Elias talking with him. You're two Old Testament men. Moses, by the way, has been dead for 1,800-something years at this point. Elijah has been dead for 900 years. But notice these men are seen and appear with our Lord Jesus. You ask me, is there life after death? I answer in the very positive word, yes. Yes, there is life beyond the grave. Moses' body had decayed. Elijah's old fleshly body had decayed but now they appear in their resurrected bodies just as your loved ones and mine will come forth recognizable in a new body yes a body likened to that of the Lord Jesus all with no corruption no decay no imper Im imperfections nothing of that that has plagued a man this side of the grave. But even in this miraculous event, our Lord shows to his disciples and to us, indeed, there is life beyond the experience of death. Moses, the representative of the law. Elijah, the representative of the prophets. And thus they appear with our Lord Jesus. They talked with, uh, with him. Now, in Mark's account, uh, or Luke's, uh, yeah, Mark's, Mark or Luke's account, I forgot which just at the moment. But one of the gospel writers says that he, they talked with Jesus about his coming decease. That is, they talked to him about the death that he would die. The cross is the very central figure of the proclaiming of the gospel message. The cross, but indeed, yes, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. For herein they talk to Jesus about that one event that would be most important to the saving of men and women, boys and girls from, from, from every walk of life. They talk to him about the cross. Scripture doesn't say. Doesn't say their conversation. 
but it does reveal that they talked to him about his coming decease. And then notice another fact, that while Moses and Elias talking with Jesus, Peter answered, then answered Peter and said, Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If thou wilt let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. Aren't we all like Peter? We'd like to stay on the mountaintop all the time too, wouldn't we? We'd like that, but I tell you, you'd burn every gear you've got out if the Lord left you on the mountaintop all the time. Yet these, Simon Peter said, oh, it's so good and so wonderful. All of the hustle and bustle and the corruption and the sin in the world beneath us here. Oh, it's all gone. Well, I just want to stay here. But Peter made a terrible error. His error was he placed Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. But the scripture reveals that in all things, Christ must have the preeminence that God will share his glory with no man. The Lord Jesus then, or rather, the Lord Jesus placed on that same level with the law and the prophets. However, Jesus is superior. Why? Because he came to fulfill the law. He came as the utter fulfillment of all that the prophets had talked about. And now Peter's trying to put him on the same level. Oh, no, Simon Peter, he must be exalted. He alone is worthy. He alone deserves the place of superior preeminence. And thus, he alone deserves that in your life and in mine. But notice when Peter said that, uh, the Bible says, while he yet spake, lo, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. How prone we are to listen to other voices. But none are on the level of our Lord Jesus. Many listen to the voices of vain and uh, vain philosophers. Many listen to the voices of religion. Many listen to the voice of Buddha and his philosophy or Confucius. And yet again, we are to listen to none but our Lord Jesus. No, not even Mary, but the Lord Jesus alone. Hear ye him all through the scripture. God calls for men to hear, to hear. And that word hearing implies indeed the fact of not only hearing, but doing as we have heard, learning from God, and then walking with God in the very manner in which he is asked. The hearing of his voice, is a sin, hearing of his word, is essential even in salvation. In John chapter 5, You'll remember these words. John chapter 5 
at verse 24. And the scripture says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily or truly I say, he that heareth my word and believeth. So it is the, there is the necessity of the hearing of the word. Paul talked about in his letter to the Romans. And he said, uh, uh, how can they hear without a preacher? That men must hear the gospel. There must be a proclaimer. And when I use the word preacher, I'm not talking about somebody who stands up in the pulpit simply. I'm talking about everyone to herald forth this wondrous message of the gospel. The hearing of the word is essential. The hearing of the word is essential for, for a conviction of sin. Paul did not learn that he was a sinner until God's word told him so. He said, I, I, I didn't know I was a covet. I, I didn't know I uh, was sinful and I was a covetous man until the Lord said, Thou shalt not covet. In other words, God's word reveals our sin to us. But thank God the same word reveals the Savior to us. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. I hear some of these characters today is telling about hearing from God. They claim that God speaks to them now some kind of vision or voice. And yet again, uh, they're jumping up and down. Isn't it odd that when these men hear the word of God, they are afraid. They tremble. Men today ought to tremble at the word of God. Ought to, uh, uh, there ought to be a reverence and awe when we hear his word. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on the face, were so afraid, and Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. What a blessed Savior is ours to touch us in our times of fear and to tell us to get up and keep going. Even so, this very event of the, of the transfiguration of our Lord says to you and me that one day, one day when he comes, we shall be like him, no longer in this room of flesh, but made in the likeness of our wonderful and our blessed Lord. Let me ask you today another question. The transfiguration of our Lord caused what was on the inside to be seen on the outside. Now here's my question. What if you were transfigured? What if what's on the inside right now were to come out and be exposed to those who are seated around you? Would hatred, jealousy, wickedness, lusts, unforgiveness, jealousies, as I've said, suspicions, Despite pride, 
I wonder if we were transfigured, what men would see on the outside. Thank God for those of us who are saved. The Spirit of God lives on the inside, but yet at this point in our journey, we have another old nature. And oftentimes it's that nature which, which is seen and comes out. May God help us then to rejoice in the hope that when our Lord comes, we will be made like Him. We'll have no fear of the old nature overwhelming us and others being, others being saddened and led astray and tempted as a result of the sinfulness that's on the inside of us. I ask you then today, do you know this wonderful and blessed and majestic Savior? Do you have the promise and the prospect of one day being like Him? If you're saved, I believe that's the yearning, burning desire of your heart to be like the Lord Jesus Himself. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Heavenly Fathers, we bow here this morning. We thank you for the glorious prospect that's before us. We thank you in this passage of Scripture of the wondrous truths that are so evident and so revealed. How Moses, even a representative of the law, but a representative and a, and a type of those who die in the Lord. And yet as Moses was seen alive and in conversation with the Savior. So likewise, Lord, you will bring our loved ones out of the grave with, a, with Lord, a resurrected body. We think of Elijah and how he was caught up into heaven in a whirlwind. How, how, how that very event and the presence of Elijah there typifies for us the coming rapture of the church. Those who will be alive when you return and into the clouds of glory, you'll call us. And then we thank Lord Jesus of that multitude down at the foot of the mount who knew who Lord indeed perhaps would represent the nations of the world that one day will be brought into your glorious kingdom when you have established it upon this earth. We thank of Peter, James, and John Lord, uh, the fact of our Jewish brethren who will indeed go through much trial and tribulation, but who will become great firm witnesses for you. We thank you that you'll come for us one day. Now hear our prayer and speak to the heart of any person here this morning that's never trusted you as Savior. May they come believing on the Lord Jesus, hearing the voice of Christ, obeying Him, coming to Him. Father, if there are those who need to come to the fellowship of, of this church by statement or by transfer of membership or for baptism, may we just all willingly be obedient unto Thee. We'll give You the praise and we know You'll be honored. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.